Welcome to the new Israel Bible Podcast. I am Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I sit down with Pinha Shur, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at IBC. This makes him the perfect person to ask about all the complications related to the book of Revelation. We discuss how to read the book in its proper cultural, historical, and theological settings. I don't know about you, but I have heard crazy predictions about the end of the world based on a terrible understanding of this book. Throughout my life, various world leaders were described as the Antichrist, and new technologies were considered the mark of the beast. So how do we untangle folk predictions from a more grounded interpretation of what the book of Revelation says? I start the conversation with the question I know we are all asking. Is this book actually all about us and the end of our world? In my opinion, the book is not really about us. It is about them. I mean, and that's like any book, okay? So one of the big perspectives that people have to understand about reading any biblical literature, if it has an audience that the author is addressing, then it is that primary audience that's what it's really all about. We are the latest and maybe not even the greatest. You know, we just show up on the scene and we get to take in what is coming to us, but we are passive recipients, and then there's active recipients who are part of this whole story. So like any other biblical book, like any prophecy or anything spoken to someone, it's not spoken to me here today in the 21st century, it's spoken to that person listening to when the prophet speaks. And there's a lot of times there's temporal references to these things. So in my opinion, a book of Revelation, of course, is directed to the people in the past, people who are living through that moment to whom John is writing or, or the author, you know, identifies himself with John. And so it's for them primarily. It doesn't mean it's not for us. It doesn't mean we don't have anything learned from it. it. doesn't mean we can't glean things from it or be guided by it in any way, because always I think the authors have a greater vision in place. They have like the immediate audience and the overflow. There's always that overflow because there's somebody out there that's going to be benefiting from this later on. Right. I mean, we're visionaries. I mean, most of us are like that. We know that our words don't just, you know, fall flat. They they hopefully go on and on and on. So I think a lot of biblical authors know that there's a greater impact at some point, although that is not their primary orientation. And yeah. so Revelation is like that. Although it, it's such an interesting book, and out of curiosity, I did a quick search online, which can take you down weird rabbit holes. But I did a quick search as to using the book of Revelation, when will the end times be? And mm. almost every single century since the first century CE has thought that the end times would be in their century. But in the 19th and 20th 
20th century and 21st century in particular, we've exploded. So for some reason, the Christian community has taken the book of Revelation and has amplified. I mean, we have over 40 different dates in the 20th century alone where the end times, the end of the world was supposed to happen. And we're right on track for the 21st century. There's over 40 different expected times for the world to end. So we've definitely taken it and have focused this book on us now. And we've sort of lost focus of exactly what you said, this being for an ancient audience. We have a fascination with ourselves. And that is one of the biggest problems. And, it, and I would say it's a yeah. Western world problem a lot because we're individualists and we look at the world through the eyes of me. Everything is about me. We read the Bible as in what's in it for me. And that's that consumer mentality and whatever you want to call it. This is a phenomenon that we have been experiencing in our culture for a while now. And it carries over into how we read the Bible. You know, it's not about us, it's about me. You see, Jewish communities never read anything ever mm. as it's about me. It's always about us. Then who is us? Let's define us. And that's and that's the idea. And and it's us is the whole Israel and not just now, but even back then and yet right. to come. And so it's a big cohesive picture, you know, in a in the mind of an Eastern person. It sounds so different, but what we have taken an Eastern book, a mystical book, and have just tried to look at it through a prism and a perspective that is foreign to it. I mean, just really applying wrong keys. It's like you know, trying to open the right door with the wrong key, and it doesn't work, and we keep jamming it, and we keep twisting it, and, right. and it doesn't quite come out the way we want it, and then we get frustrated because they're like, it's not working. You know, why am I not getting through? It's ironic, but that's kind of how we treat it. And, yeah. and so there's a right approach and the right key. And, but that reminds us that we have to step back and it's not about us, it's about the original audience. So when we take on yeah. the identity of, well, let's say if we could even for fun, try to take on the identity of the original audience, try to step into their shoes, I think we would have massive give back to us of yeah. all of a sudden seeing things that we do not see. So basically, you're saying that you don't know the date of the end of the world. Absolutely not. And if I told you I knew, you should, you should call me a liar. <laughs> if I it's, did. It's on the very end of the course. So for everyone who takes your course, it's yeah. at the very end. <laughs> I, I tell people, if I knew the end of the world, I would have written a book, made it, made it, made it very, very expensive uh, or very, very cheap. I don't know. It sold it to every single person on the planet or something like that. But, you know, and I would have been rich, uh, right. although a lot of people actually do that, you know, yeah. <laughs> and so they become rich, but nobody knows. And, and, and it's just, you know, these kinds of things are unknowable in my idea. So this is an important issue. A Western worldview is very different from an Eastern worldview. Understanding the difference is important. So the Israel Bible Center created a series of seminars to discuss the difference between the Greco-Roman and Jewish thought. So although we do not dive into all of those details here, you do have access to that conversation if you are enrolled on the Israel Bible Center website. As for our topic at hand, Pinchas describes the body of Jewish literature the Book of Revelation belongs in and likens it all to the study of jazz. 
Touching on what you were just talking about, about trying to use the correct key to unlock and pass through a door. Uh, So the book of Revelation is in the Greek New Testament. And so there have been a lot of Christians who have read this book, analyzed this book from the Greek worldview instead of taking on this Jewish worldview. So it's not necessarily thought of so much within the larger Jewish literature context. So can you explain books like Ezekiel, like Daniel, like Revelation, these all kind of hang out together. They're very similar. So can you tell us a little bit about what these Jewish apocalyptic texts are and why we even have this genre? Revelation is not a book that stands on itself. It is a product of a whole body of literature and a whole tradition as, as if I just right now, imagine if I wrote a song, okay, and nobody has ever heard of a jazz, you know, or something like that, you know, and I said, this is jazz. And everybody's like, ooh, what's, what's jazz? Nobody knows what jazz is. Well, imagine there's a whole massive amount of jazz music out there that you have never even experienced. And it's like there's all these jazz musicians and singers and there's styles within styles and variations. All of a sudden you have no idea what it is. Well, this is how people read Revelation. It's a genre they're not familiar with. They're like, this is the only one they have because it's unique in the New Testament. New Testament contains only that one apocalyptic book and that's it. But what people don't realize that in the Jewish history, there is a load of other apocalyptic books like Revelation. Maybe not exactly like, but similar. But then so isn't any other jazz musician who writes a song or does a piece is not going to be anything like the other guy, you know, although there will be overlaps and and similar ideas going back and forth and things like that. So the genre of apocalyptic literature is actually quite broad and very diverse. But what a lot of Christians don't do is they don't use any apocalyptic books that are outside of the canonical literature. So, of course, we have Revelation and we have Daniel. You just mentioned Ezekiel, and of course, Ezekiel is a huge influence. I mean, probably one of the biggest influence on this particular book is Ezekiel. But I would add to that other books like Enoch, for example, and the books of Ezra, okay, Baruch. (laughs) I think all those books had same ideas, and, and there's a little bit of a complexity we have to understand. Some of these books we don't have precise dating on, and some of these books might have been written down later. Some of the books might have been written after Revelation were written, but they existed in the oral form because these are stories we tell. Uh, Jewish culture being a largely oral culture, not a written culture uh, in that era, there was a lot of lore that were just passed on uh, from person to person, you know, And that was the norm. And in fact, it was preferred to do it that way because that is the way you could preserve it. Uh, Writing materials are expensive. Libraries are not around. Where are you going to deposit it? Are you going to carry those books with you? What are you going to do? You know, backpack full of scrolls? I mean, like, so oral way of passing things on was as weird as it is for now today for modern people who hold on to massive amounts of information in a written form, you know, in digital form now. For them, that was the way to transmit. So a lot of these books might have not been around, written yet, till after Revelation. But the ideas, the stories they tell, the visions they cast have already predate Revelation by many years. So kind of 
we're dealing now not with just with written books, and we're actually dealing with much greater lore that spreads out across, you know, a much greater distance of time. Yeah. So it gets a little complicated, but the apocalyptic literature genre is what I would say people have to explore and read all those books, and that will give them a really good background and revelation, really yeah. what, what's really going on. There's a whole library out there uh, that Christians simply don't know about. And so within that, even though you mentioned that dating, uh, the writings of these different scrolls, these different writings can be really challenging. Can we confidently say that by the time of the writing down of Revelation, it already fit into a very well-recognized genre? People understood what this was. They knew to understand it as jazz and not as classical music. Exactly. There's a very well-defined genre and uh, and it exists, and its second temple literature is full of of these types of books. You, you just some of them fragmental. We don't have the whole books even sometimes, but even bits and pieces that we read, we get the idea. And once you start reading it all, you're like, oh my goodness, the amount of bleed over from this book to this book is so huge. They all talk about the same things. They all talk about visions of heaven and God's throne and somebody being next to God's throne who is not God, you know, and there's like all these things, you know, like, where are you getting this from? And why is this guy getting it and this guy getting it and this guy getting it? Why are they all talking about the same thing in a similar way, but their own words and you utilize the stories for their own purposes. So, I mean, you start reading these books and and you're like, wow. Uh, But again, people just don't discover them. And uh, I mentioned Enoch and more and more people now you know, I think are waking up to Enoch. And I think Enoch has a really huge influence on, on Revelation as well. There's a lot of parallels, a lot of connections, because that was a very popular tradition. Many Israelites read the books of Enoch, you know, and that to them, that was that was kind of like the meta-narrative, you know, that was in yeah. the back of their mind as they approached these texts. And so it's almost like a given foundation. And so if you know it, and you, then you're sharing that foundation with them, and then you're right. reading it in the same ways they would be reading it, which is right. kind, of, kind of cool. Since I am fascinated with geography and the exchange of ideas, I am interested in the causes behind new cultural developments. So we see that Revelation fits within a larger group of Jewish texts that were well known by the time Revelation was written down. But I want to know what the historical and international influencers were that fostered the development of this new style of somewhat mysterious writings called apocalyptic literature. You know, why did jazz appear? You know, why did rock music originate, right? So, like, we keep talking about music, but I think it's just great analogies because these are art forms, right? In in Jewish uh, culture, Apocalyptic literature rises up from the times of great turbulence because one of the functions of apocalyptic literature is to give the listeners or the hearers or the audience comfort. My life is terrible. Everything is crushing down. Everything is awful. It's all, you know, the enemies surround me. They're about to kill me, choke me, whatever. I'm, ter- I'm, I'm feeling distressed. But there's something else going on over there in heaven that I am not even seeing. There's another part of this life that I am not realizing. And so having heavenly visions of God's throne and there's the war in heaven and the war in heaven parallels with the war that I'm going through here on earth, 
all of a sudden, I realized that I'm a part of a much bigger picture. It's not just about my life and my little community, my little town, my mm -hmm. suffering, that there's something bigger going on. There's the powers of darkness and the powers of light. They're battling it out. And I'm caught in that, in that struggle. And I'm actually in the middle of it. And that gives me a frame of reference understanding of how do I fit into the story. And that gives me mm -hmm. comfort to realize that, hey, I'm not alone. God is looking out. He's on the throne. It's kind of an idea. And so apocalyptic literature came really in many ways of a way to make sense of suffering and to push through persecutions and martyrdom, all sorts of things. So that's kind of kind of the, if you want to think about it, that's what precipitates creation of that particular genre because it comes out of a psychological need almost to right. rationalize things and to figure out how, how do I move uh, forward? How do I get through this time? And so the prophets, you know, always speak messages of comfort besides yes. rebuke. And this is no different. Apocalyptic message is at times rebuke and judgment and fire and brimstone. But at times it's comfort. Hey, there's heavenly angels out there who are watching over you. And right. they might just snatch you away into heaven and show you glimpses of glorious future that you haven't seen. So, yes, you're going through this time now, but there's this wonderful, bright future and all of a sudden you're saying, you know what? It's all worth it. It's, I can live through this. It's, if that's what the future is, I can yes. make it. What are characteristics of apocalyptic literature? Is there an easy definition for it? I don't know if there's an easy definition because it's so diverse. There are different types of apocalyptic literature. But I mean, to me, one of the biggest overarching principles that I see is the idea of presenting that duality of the world that is here and now where we're living through. And then there's the unseen world out there that we don't always get to see. And being able to peek into that world and connect it with ours is we kind of start seeing a bigger picture. So to me, that idea of, you know, of comfort and looking at the future, obviously prophetic, but then also looking back, you know, it it's it's so diverse, it's complicated, like like any other literature. You you have all these references to different times. You have these codes. One of the things that uh, a lot of apocalyptic literature uses is codes. They don't speak yeah. in plain. The prophets don't just say, this means this. Right. They kind of hint around and about. And, and I think Revelation is even more so. And the mm -hmm. reason why Revelation is more so is because these people are living through serious persecution. And they almost like develop their own little language to protect themselves hmm. in among themselves, they can say things and refer to things and not get in trouble. Uh, the, you can criticize the government and say all kinds of things about people without them even realizing you're talking about them. You know, why? Because you're using a code language. And you know, let the reader understand kind of idea. Like, right. wink, wink. Wink, wink, you know. <laughs> Let the reader understand, you know, those of you who are smart enough will get it kind of an idea. And those of you who don't speak my language will never figure out what the name of the beast is or whatever, you know. That's that's the code language that you see, you know, where things are not what they are. And, and, and so you will see that same exact code language, imagery, visual language, and a lot of apocalyptic books where animals are not animals. They actually represent people and very specific people you know, and things like that. Or kingdoms, right? Sometimes we have like an eagle or we'll have a goat or a bear or something like that. And it's actually a reference yeah. to a historical time period where an empire was in charge. 
but usually just represents the nations of various sorts, basically, that yeah. have oppressed Israel, which is, again, you know, it's all about oppression and me surviving it. And I'm going to I'm going to personify these powers that have been troubling me into animals because that's what I look at them like right. wild, crazy beasts that look and come and eat me kind of an idea. So, yeah. That animal imagery, beast imagery, whatever, you know, I know beast is such a weird English word. I mean, we keep, keep operating about it. Nobody ever talks about, you know, birds and beasts, you know, <laughs> very old fashioned. Right. When I say beast in English, I visualize some kind of monstrous thing, right? But then I can point to my cat over here and say, hey, you beast. <laughs> right. So it's like... English language sometimes can create an illusion in us that we're talking about something fantastical and scary and monstrous, where in reality, we're just referring to a, a living being, you know, or something like that, you know. So our assumption is that as because apocalyptic literature was a known literature, that the audience would have had the key to understanding these mysterious stories. They could decode the message and understand what the author is saying. So it's a clear message to the audience, even if it's an unclear message to outsiders. Yes, there, there's that assumption. And I don't know how much of that assumption is, you know, you know, fair. I think there are some keys. You, you still require to be astute. You still require to know things. And we can't assume that everybody knew everything. But you can assume since this is a message to a community that between all of them, there's enough people who get enough to understand the big picture. Because even if you don't understand all the details, you always have the big picture. And this is the big difference, again, between Eastern, Western way of looking at things. Yep. It's seeing the big picture versus the tiny details. Do I really need to break it down to the lowest denominator? Do I need every little detail or do I just need to know that God is on the throne, he's got my back and everything's going to work out yeah. because the angels are going to come and kick everybody's behind. So like these, you know, there's, there's how deep do you need to go into detail to understand it? Sometimes yeah. the detail is not there to be understood. Sometimes the detail is there to simply take me to the next step of understanding there's a much bigger picture out there that I don't even fully even begin to grasp, you know? And so, yeah, uh, there is, there are keys, there are keys, but we can't mm -hmm. assume that the audience would have had all of them lined up. So right. I think it's a little bit romanticizing and kind of like thinking that they got everything and we get nothing or something right. like that. <laughs> I think we both have keys because we still have some of those keys as well. But yeah. I think they're the great, adv great advantage because they have more and they're living through it. And it makes much more sense to them mm -hmm. than it's to us. Because if the message is time tied or event tied or personalities tied, then we do not have the benefit of interacting with those elements. And therefore, we're a little bit out of sync yeah. with that, where they are much more in sync just by being there at the right time in the right place and interacting yeah. with those things. I sort of think that the year 2020 will fit that kind of category. All of us who are living through 2020, we will have a certain instinctual understanding of what this time was like that yeah. multiple generations from now, much less a thousand years from now, they'll sort of be able to get it in the mind way, but like we are getting it in our whole body. Revelation is hitting it big and bigger in 2020. People are looking at this and saying, what is going on? Is these, are these the biblical <laughs> plagues of the revelation that are being sent right. upon us? I mean, with, 
you know, disease and pestilence and things like that. I think, again, you know, it drives people back to, to look at these things, to look at the calamity and suffering makes yeah. us yearn for these types of answers. And, and that's what the function of yeah. this literature is to give you some sort of a sense of understanding what's going on. So, yeah, we're hopefully 2020 is it, you know. Right. You're looking, you're saying like 2020 is going to give us understanding, you know, and, you know, an optimist would say, that's great. That means things are getting better. And a pessimist would say, wait till 2021. <laughs> Maybe right. that would be the year that give us even more understanding. So. <laughs> there will be a new beast arising that's right, on the that's horizon. Right. There, there, yeah, there comes out of the water yet another creature. <laughs> Join us next week as we explore what books like Enoch and Baruch or what geography and the Torah have to do with interpreting the book of Revelation. You do not want to miss out. So be sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you are listening to this podcast and tell your family and friends to listen as well. If you like what you hear in this podcast, you will love the content in Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on Jewish context and culture. You can register now at israelbiblecenter.com. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds that you hear. And thanks to you for listening in and being curious about the Bible. I look forward to our conversation next week.